You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. I didn't know that you could outrun a Tyrannosaurus Rex until Cody Cassidy just told me. Like, Jay, did you know that? No, I have no idea we can outrun a, a T-Rex. So Cody Cassidy just taught us how to survive in the dinosaur age, how to survive an asteroid, how to survive if you were on the Titanic, and a whole other thing. So he wrote a book, How to Survive History. It's out right now. Here's Cody Cassidy breaking it down, how to survive all these different types of historical disasters. Fascinating stuff. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Cody Cassidy, thank you for joining the podcast. First off, that's a real cool name, Cody Cassidy. You sound like you belong in the TV show Yellowstone. Where, where are you from? Uh, I'm just from Palo Alto, so about as far from the ranches as you can get. So you wrote this book, How to Survive History, How to Outrun a Tyrannosaurus, Escape Pompeii, Get Off the Titanic, and Survive the Rest of History's Deadliest Catastrophes. Such a fun book. You did so much research for this. Everything, you know, of course, from dinosaurs to the plague, how to survive the Titanic, and how to survive ice ages. 
What made you do this book? You know, it started when I initially read a study that suggested that I could outrun a Tyrannosaurus, which I found pretty surprising. I, um, I always thought that they were the most terrifying predator that, in Earth's history, So, and I'm a pretty middling athlete. That got me sort of thinking about survival advice would be an interesting way to learn about different eras in, in history. I think it sort of yeah, it sort of grounds. It provides a, a sort of ground level perspective on events, and it of course makes it kind of exciting. Yeah, no, it's a great lens to view history and like it made me think of a lot of things, like the Tyrannosaurus one. Like you mentioned, apparently, I guess we can outrun a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I didn't know that. Well, they run about twelve or thirteen miles per hour, so it depends a little bit on your your top speed. But even if you're a little bit slower than that. I found this really interesting study where they put accelerometers on cheetah and impala. Even though the impala runs at about 40 miles an hour and the cheetah runs at about 53, the impala usually gets away. And, and they do that by not running at their top speed. They sort of run at about 80% of their very fastest speed. And just as the cheetah is about to catch them, they swerve. And by not running at their maximum speed, they maintain the sort of maneuverability advantage. And they have the endurance advantage on the cheetah. So all they have to do is get them to miss a few times. So... At first, this was sort of pretty shocking to me, the idea that you should not run away at your top speed from a pursuing predator. But then I sort of recalled my days on the school playground, realized it was a tactic I also employed when being chased by sort of larger bullies. If you just sort of wait till they almost catch you and then dodge, you can get away. And we, and even though the, the Tyrannosaurus actually had great endurance, it was sort of a long, fast walker. Humans, that's sort of our greatest athletic asset is our endurance. So you should still be able to beat it out over the long run. Well, it's it, what was interesting to me, I, I don't know why I never thought of this, but if you think about it, you know, every predator has their prey, right? Like that's how they eat as they catch the, the prey and, and eat them. But from an evolutionary perspective, there has to be a, the prey have to be skilled enough that most of the time they escape. So this is how their species survives. If the prey was too easily caught, then they would just get wiped out instantly, and we would historically not know them as the prey of another species. And so for all the cases of predator-prey, like cat and mouse, the prey have to be just good enough they're only caught some of the time, that there's effort required to catch them. So it makes sense that, although we were never the prey of the Tyrannosaurus rex, it makes sense that there's no species that's so powerful that a good enough prey wouldn't be able to maneuver figure out some strategy to maneuver around, even though it was mostly prey. Yeah, exactly. If there was like the dodo bird of the, on the Africa savanna, then I, I suppose it, wouldn't have, it would never have survived the, the cheetah and we wouldn't know about it. So, And I guess humans are descended from some kind of small rat-like creatures from the dinosaur era. So we were probably too small to be prey of the big dinosaurs. Yeah, we were uh, a sort of shrew-looking creature when the Chicaxalub asteroid hit and wiped out the dinosaurs. So we were sort of on a different plane. <laughs> who was the predator to the Tyrannosaurus rex? Like who would eat a Tyrannosaurus rex? They had no predators. They're sort of like the, the great white sharks of the, of the terrain. I, I found um, one paleontologist calls them the most athletic, greatest hunter that this earth has ever seen. They had um, incredible, uh, they were about the weight of an African elephant. And uh, even though it seems... It seems like they were slow. They were faster than their prey, which were the Triceratops, which were enormous. I should add, though, that you can only outrun the full-grown Tyrannosaurus rex. It turns out when they were sort of teenagers, they were actually 
smaller and, and a lot faster. They were sort of in a 30-mile-an-hour range. Unfortunately, no running tactics will, will save you from, from that. But ultimately, the dinosaurs were wiped out by this asteroid. How do you say it? I don't know how to say it. Chigexalub? I didn't think that was survivable, but you basically said, basically you have to be in the Maldives in the Indian Ocean. But, but what, what, what happened? So the, the, if an asteroid were to hit right now, like let's say in the middle of, I don't know, Asia or North America or whatever, what, what would happen? Well, it all depends on the size, but this one was about uh, six miles wide, uh, traveling at about 10 miles per second, which hits with about 100 million times the, the, the energy of the largest nuclear weapon ever detonated. So even though it hit in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, it would have killed you if you were in Texas. It would have uh, deafened you if you were in New York and, and blown out window panes all the way as, as far as Buenos Aires. And that, wow. was, that was really the, the beginning. It's, a lot of people call it the most spectacular day in Earth's history. It was, when it hit, it gouged a, it gouged a hole deep, deeper into Earth's mantle and launched tsunamis about 1,000 feet high across the Gulf Coast. 600-foot waves hit Europe and Africa, and then and then it sort of got even worse as it all the uh, Earth that it gouged out. It was about twenty five trillion tons of of Earth. Some of it, it ejected so quickly it actually exited our orbit and sort of splattered about the galaxies. But most of it came falling back down, and as it fell, it passed through the atmosphere and and incinerated. Basically, it came down as fiery chunks and sort of ignited global firestorms. And then even worse than that was that there's quite a bit of oil actually in the Yucatan area. And this sort of um, vaporized and then coated the stratosphere in a sort of black paint, which took about 10 years to come back down and sort of reduced sunlight by 90%. Global temperatures fell by more than 50 degrees. And as you can imagine, devastated life on the planet. All the dinosaurs died except for a few ground nesting birds. But as we said, our, our shrew-like ancestors did survive. So I would suggest that if you found a cave on the other side of the planet from where it hit, somewhere in what is now Indonesia, and not too close to the water, of course, you, you might survive. There's turtles to eat, and uh, just don't, don't, eat our, don't eat our ancestors is the only thing I would suggest. I'm surprised it didn't just wipe out everything. So basically half the world died within minutes is what you're saying. Uh, you know, in the chapter, you describe how tsunamis hit every coastline. So you'd have to have survived these tsunamis at some, also, like, would you have to, like, did our ancestors, which again, resemble nothing like current humans, obviously, but did, did our ancestors, like, have ability to survive in the water? Or like, what, what, what did they have that allowed them to survive? It's mostly burrowing creatures or, or creatures that were at least lived part-time in the water seem to have survived the best. Or birds um, that that, uh, that nested on the ground. It just speaks to the endurance of life, I suppose. There's sort of, it is hard to imagine any anything surviving that level of catastrophe. Is that the only asteroid that size that's hit the Earth? In the very beginning, larger asteroids hit. I think um, in the early stages of Earth's history, it was sort of a shooting gallery out here. And I should add that the experts I talked with. I had to do a bit of convincing for them to suggest that you even had a chance. So you don't have a particularly good chance of surviving this, even if you follow all the instructions. One thing that's interesting, and I wonder if it's different now than from back then, but Jupiter apparently acts as like this magnet that soaks up danger. Like if, if an asteroid comes into the solar system like that fast, heading straight to Earth, there's a large chance it could get sucked into Jupiter's gravity first. 
And so that's how, uh, to some extent, we avoid a lot of these. Yeah, I think the odds are quite a bit better than this would suggest. And yeah, the, all the other planets and Jupiter has such a higher tug of gravity that it sort of shields us. I'm going to go a little back and forth in history, but I was fascinated by the Titanic chapter. And, you know, I always thought that the only people who survived were the people who made it to the lifeboats. But you say no. Yeah, a few survived in the water. Most of them survived on overturned life rafts. A few were pulled out. It's The water was about 27 degrees. It's basically, it was about as cold as, as ocean water, as water can get without freezing. It would have about 45 minutes before of, of floating before you sort of go into cardiac arrest, but really only about 15 before your, your limbs would numb to the point where you couldn't swim. Unless you had a way of getting out of the water, you wouldn't have much of a chance. Although I would suggest that the life rafts were only about uh, 500 yards away. So if you are a decent swimmer, you could make that in about 15 minutes. I think the world's best do it in about seven. And you cite the diary of someone who did make it, right? Like, what was his story? Yeah, well, the he's the one who, there was a couple of life rafts that they weren't they didn't manage to launch out of the Titanic that, that, uh, that were too late. And he was a crew member that happened to sit on top of this life raft. And so they was able to stay a little bit out of the water. And a few others, a few others did did this with him. Uh, so it's it's possible. Although I do think that you could make it onto a life raft too if you uh, really knew what you were doing. I would suggest even if from the third class deck, you could, as soon as the iceberg hit, you could. Well, first, I would suggest changing into your finest clothing because the life rafts were on the on the first class deck, so you would have to sort of look the part. But then there was also an escape route to the top. There were some ladders in the front of the boat. These were unannounced, and they never told the third-class passengers about them. Uh, but they're there. And if you get there early enough, the first boats that were launched were not full at all. So you, you might be able to find a seat. Were they really saying women and children only, or was everybody sort of piling in if they could? No, it really was women and children only. Although we can see from the, these passenger manifests that um, the right side, the, the guards on the, the right side of the ship were a little bit more stringent about that policy than the, than the guards on the left. There, was, there were some guardsmen on the right that were threatening to shoot passengers or shoot any man that, that walked onto the boat. So if you're a man, I would suggest going to the left side where they were a little bit looser on their policies. And if you're a woman or child, go to the right. So this is really good for a time traveler. If you were just sort of like plopped down and then you realize you're in the Titanic and you have a half hour left. But wait, what's the left side and what's the right side? How would you know? Oh, that's a good point. Well, the port side of the ship is sort of if you're facing the the front of the boat as it's going, then your left side is ah, the I see. Yeah. so yeah. Ah, yeah. I hope I, I I'm not sure if I included that in the instructions. <laughs> so, so but if you were on like let's say a, a cruise liner now that hit an iceberg and it's going to you know cave in the way the Titanic is going to break in half and sink the way the Titanic did, what would you personally do right now? Well, the most important thing is to know the the way to get to the life rafts before the accident happens, which was not something they told the passengers on the Titanic. So most of them, particularly in the third class, sadly never even made it to the top where the lifeboats were. The most important thing I would say is to know how to get there. The Titanic was sort of unique though in the way that it sank so gracefully. I think that's partly why it makes, why it's such a, a famous wreck because it sort of, it took almost three hours to go to go below. So it sort of had this Plenty of time for a sort of human drama to play out on the decks, and it never even it never even tilted too much. A lot of wrecks will immediately start to tilt and make sort of launching the boats impossible or walking difficult. It was a pretty unique wreck in that there was, I mean, there was even the band was even playing as they sank. So, and a lot of wrecks aren't quite so graceful, and, and it's a little bit more desperate. Couldn't anybody like? Yes, there were life rafts. 
But as you mentioned, it took three hours for the Titanic to sink. Was there any other way to kind of do a makeshift life raft, like do something with your beds and light and and tie a bunch of um, life jackets to them, try to, you know, figure it out? Yeah, and you mentioned you have to go to the stern because that was the last part to go into the water. But was there some kind of strategies that someone could employ? Yeah, I actually, that's probably a good point. There are certainly everybody was issued life jackets. So maybe you could strap a bunch of life jackets to a, to a couple doors maybe and, 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 make a, and make a makeshift raft. If you really want to save the ship, I found one naval architect who claims they could have saved the ship if they had stuffed every life jacket on the boat into the, into the forward hull where the, where the flooding was taking place. And that would have displaced just enough water so that the um, bulkheads didn't flood over and, and the ship would have been able to either limp to port or at least stayed above water for long enough to for the Carpathia to arrive the next morning. So maybe maybe if you're really fast, you could you could save the ship perhaps. But no one was saved who was like just in the water. Like by then, like you say, it just takes 45 minutes and the, the rescue ship came the next morning. So you just couldn't like float around in the water. It was too cold. Yeah, absolutely. You would, it, it took hours for the rescue ship to arrive. So yeah, you have to find a way to get out of the water, at least partially. I wonder if anybody made it to like the lifeboats and... The people on the lifeboat pushed them away. Like, no, we can't save you. I didn't read any accounts of that. Um, most of them were only like three quarters full at most. So I think if you get there, unless you find some really heartless passengers there, I think you should be okay. Were they confident they were going to be rescued, the people who were in the lifeboats? I'm not sure about that. I, they, they, they sent out rescue calls, but sort of famously, the nearest ship had turned off their radio, which could have saved them. And that sort of resulted in all sorts of new laws about not turning off your radios while you're uh, at sea. And I think the the Carpathia certainly got the distress call, and that's why it came and rescued them. But I, I doubt most of the passengers were aware that that had taken place. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides. 
like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class, so I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, let's say you're quantum leaping, you're time traveling back to uh, the Crusades and you're in the 1300s. And you land there and you know the biggest thing you're going to have to survive is not armed siege, but the Black Death, the, the plague. So what would you do? You're time traveling back and you land in the 1300s, 1349 specifically. It wouldn't be a great place to be. This is Some people call this the greatest catastrophe to ever befall mankind. It's sort of in, in just 18 months, they estimate about 40% of London died. There's 100,000 people living in the city at the time. But you would think the best course of action would be to leave the city and go to some rural area with a little less density, but that would actually be a big mistake because the plague, which they, they didn't know at the time, was spread by fleas, which were being born on rats. So we really didn't, human density wasn't the most important factor in uh, the spread of this disease, as it is in lots. Uh, in this case, it was sort of the ratio of rats to humans that, that mattered more because in these farming villages, there were quite a few rats and not very many people. So when the plague killed off the rats, and the fleas needed to find new hosts, there weren't too many options. So if you were one of those options, the likelihood that you would be bit would be quite a higher. So 
The, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So the, the the fatality rate in these rural villages was actually much higher than it was in, in London. And then if you had a, in later plagues, the sort of wealthy learned that if they escaped to their sort of rat-free manors on the countryside, that was um, safer. But uh, in the initial outbreak, they had no idea about that. So unless you had one of those or you had a friend with one of those, uh, it would be best to stay in the city. But then there are, of course, safer places within London. It was sort of... Uh, this is generally the south of the city, more of the cleaner parts of town, the wealthier parts of town with had a little less refuse on the streets. Those were the highest places. And then really, I would have thought the the best idea would be to get a cat or to get rat traps or something, but that's also a mistake because the only thing more dangerous than a live rat is, of course, a dead one because a dead rat forces the fleas to find new hosts. So don't get in any of that. And, just, uh, and then, of course, you got to avoid flea bites, sort of long sleeves, Tuck your pants into your socks, bathe frequently, and then cross your fingers. Yeah, I thought I thought it was interesting. Like, uh, I guess wearing long sleeves, tucking your pants in, avoids the flea bites. Why does bathing a lot avoid the flea bites? That's just because if there happens to be a flea on you that hasn't bitten you yet, you could wash it off. Yeah, it takes some time for the disease to to transmit from the flea to the to you. So if you can catch oh, it, oh, I see. So the flea kind of gets in there, latches on. And it takes a while. How long does it take? It can take hours. It has to regurgitate. It's a pretty nasty process. It's sort of the bacteria actually kills the flea as well. It blocks its ability to ingest blood. So what happens is the flea will bite you. Uh, it becomes ravenous too as a side effect. So these fleas are really biting a lot. It'll bite you. It'll take in some blood, and then the blood will actually just mix in with the bacteria rather than going into the fleece uh, guts, and then it'll just, it'll uh, vomit it back out. So it, it'll deposit the bacteria into, the, into your bloodstream. That is fascinating. I always thought it was like sort of like a needle, like it just injected the disease into you. <laughs> no, it, I like, it, yeah, partially enters the flea and then regurgitates back out. It's sort of, the flea dies as well eventually of starvation. So it's sort of, it's really an unfriendly bacteria to everything. Let's say you have it. Let's say you're feeling that pain in your armpit or whatever, and, and you, you're like, uh-oh, I probably have it. Is there anything you could do? No, short of antibiotics, there was no cure. And in fact, I would recommend not seeing a doctor because their, their procedures were just bleeding primarily, mm-hmm. which is painful and ineffective. So yeah, the death rate is about 60% if you're bit by a flea. It's actually in rare occasions, it can infect the lungs, the bacteria, and then it can transmit through the air. The death rate from this is uh, it's called pneumonic plague. It's, it's 100%. It's completely deadly. But if it's by a flea, you still have a chance. And how, how fast would you need to get an antibiotic? Like what antibiotic would work? <laughs> Penicillin would work fine. There's none in 1348, of course. But if you can get it, if you can get it soon, it, it will work. So basically, like if, if, I was, if I was going back in time even more than 100 years, two important things to pack if I was a time traveler would basically be an antibiotic, and probably painkillers like ibuprofen. <laughs> yeah, you can't go wrong. Antibiotic, absolutely. Uh, antibiotics would absolutely be the number one thing I would bring. The only reason I say ibuprofen also is, you know, the number one reason for suicide in the 1800s was toothaches. If you basically had dental pain, you were screwed because it only gets worse until you pull the tooth out, but then the tooth could get infected. So you need, you definitely need the antibiotics, but I would yeah. kind of want painkillers too just to survive that's a great idea. Anesthesia too. I the, yeah. the surgeries back then, if you really needed medical care, I would I would absolutely love some anesthesia. But the problem is like you can't really give yourself anesthesia. 
Like, unless, you know what, you can get, take like, you know, like they would do a, they would use alcohol, right? As kind of sort of an anesthetic. But maybe if you had in anesthetics, ketamine, which is like, you know, related to the, the party drug. So if you, if you have like really slow acting ketamine, like the way it's used by kids for partying, you could probably like self anesthetize mildly. Like it wouldn't put you completely out, but it would put you on another planet in some sense and, and you wouldn't be as affected. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Maybe consult with a party goer or a doctor and figure out exactly how to drive yeah, yourself. Yeah, one or the other. <laughs> Equal. It I'd doesn't be, matter which one. <laughs> I'd be willing to, to take some, some risk to avoid being awake for, a, for an 18th century surgery. That's for sure. What's, um, I mean, it's so fascinating, all these disasters. Like I always think about just in general, how it, if you were like teleported back or time traveled back a thousand years, just in general, how would you survive? How would you survive just reality? Forget, forget about disasters. How would you survive reality of a thousand years ago? Like there's this famous Mark Twain book, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. And this guy from Connecticut gets transported back to King Arthur's Court, but he like builds telephone networks and guns and all these things that they found incredibly useful. Like I can't build a telephone network or a gun. Like I don't know anything except how to turn on my computer and you know, log on to the internet. Like, what would you do to just survive reality uh, uh, a thousand <laughs> years ago? I think surviving your fellow man would be one of the one of the biggest steps. There's sort of quite a bit of xenophobia going on in a lot of ancient times. Um, being an outsider would be very dangerous in and of itself. So, I think step one is try to blend in as best as possible. Bottled water too. We talked about what you should bring back in time. I would be very concerned about my water supply, particularly depending on how far back you go, but 14th century or 15th century, uh, the water is very, very dangerous. So I would, I would be careful about my water sources. Well, do you know how to filter water? Do I know how to filter water? Yeah. No, is it, it involves a charcoal, right? I think you can, I think you can self-filter. This would be a good, uh, a good thing to learn if you're going back in time. I was, oh, no, um, I guess you could boil water. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. You can boil water. I, um, yeah, I sort of, in the, in the introduction of this book, I sort of go over the various things that I don't really address um, just because they're so pervasive that I'd have to bring them up every time. And bottled water and sort of avoiding violent encounters are, are two of the, the primary ones. Yeah, like let's say you got into a violent encounter, like just somebody started pushing you around or, or mugging you in the streets of London in the 1500s. What would you do? Uh, I would personally probably just run. I <laughs> I don't have yeah. a lot of confidence in my ability to survive that. Uh, so maybe if you're... Um, maybe you need to take a gun, though, <laughs> if you time travel. Yeah, that would be... I suppose that would be an option. Maybe you'd be accused of witchcraft or something, though, and that would be dangerous as well. But who's going to approach you if you got a gun? True, yeah. If maybe if you have a lot of a lot of bullets. And there was a famous essay with somebody wondering if they could have beaten the Roman army with one gun. I think I read that one time, although I don't remember the, the solution. <laughs> or what his conclusion was. That's fascinating. Like, so people like study these things, like they get PhDs in these things. Like someone got a PhD thesis proving that one gun, let's say, would be enough to, hold, or not enough to hold back the Roman empire. I am actually not surprised about that. I can, I, I have, I know people who would totally nerd out about something like that. Maybe me being amongst them, um, sort of going to the Have you considered going things. and getting a PhD? <laughs> uh, no, I, not, I think, uh, I sort of tapped out of my educational career a long time ago. I, I sort of enjoy what I'm doing. I don't, I don't know. 
I, I always thought when I graduated that I would go back into school, but I, but then I never did. So now you kind of just explore all these like weird historical topics, like your other book, um, "Who Ate the First Oyster." Who did eat the first oyster? Like I always wonder about this. Like who would think to crack open some disgusting little thing in the bottom of the ocean, like a rock on the bottom of the ocean, and eat what's inside? Like who was the first person to do that? So <laughs> it was we. the The oldest oysters were found in this um, cave in South Africa, almost 160,000 years ago, which is right about the time that they think sort of humans became cognitively human, and then. This is we sort of got into some speculation about who who it might have been, but I think it's oftentimes it's uh, it's women who gather uh, resources that are um, in the ground, and men generally go after the the game, the the resources that run away in these uh, old societies. So that's what I presumed. I assumed it must have been somebody. There are some other animals that eat them. Baboons eat oysters, so you could watch a baboon eat an oyster and then sort of presume that it was safe although that isn't that isn't always true some animals eat uh some plants that we certainly uh cannot so you could uh you could have simply just tried it and then and then probably would have cooked it i prefer my oysters raw but it's always safer to cook your food so i would have uh, assumed they certainly had fire so she would have cooked the oyster and then you could have assumed a little bit more it would be a little bit more safe and then probably how the uh, sort of hunter-gatherer survivalists advise you to try new foods is to sort of eat a little bit at a time on an empty stomach and then wait a while and see what happens and then eat a little bit more if you feel okay. Uh, that's interesting. So let's say something's poisonous. It's probably not so poisonous that if you eat just a little bit, it would just like kill you. Yeah. So you could probably... That's pretty unusual. So usually if you eat something poisonous, you eat a small bit, it'll just, you'll have a bad night. So you can just... If you need it, and if you try it on an empty stomach, you can sort of eliminate the other variables and assume that if you feel okay or if you don't feel okay that that, that, that piece of food or this oyster was responsible. You know, one thing you don't cover in the book uh, is how to survive like a nuclear bomb. Like let's say I was in Hiroshima and I knew in 10 minutes a nuclear bomb was going to hit because I time traveled there so I know the exact moment. And what what would I do, do you think, to to survive a nuclear bomb. Ducking and covering, I don't, uh, <laughs> like that old TV commercial advice, I don't think that would work. I think that it's a similar strategy to the asteroid would be to try to find a deep cave, right, is the, is the, is the best means. But the reason I didn't get into too, too many of the sort of disasters that could, uh, at least any modern disasters, is I sort of wanted to keep a little bit of a, of a distance from, I sort of like to write it in a little bit more of a fun uh, way yeah, and I sort of felt yeah. like if I got into too many disasters that well, I suppose some of these could happen. I, I write about tornadoes and earthquakes and such that certainly could repeat themselves, but I sort of write them ab about them in the context of history, so as to keep a sort of psychological remove from the from the events, so we can all sort of look at it a little bit more clear-eyed without quite as much emotion. Tornadoes, though, you do write about like uh, you write about the worst tornado in American history. Like how how does one survive a tornado? Like I see a tornado coming. I don't know if it's going to hit me or not. What would I do? Well, the first step is to see whether you can get out of its way. Um, and I, as as a, a someone from the West Coast, not familiar with tornadoes, I would have thought you should run away from it. But that's, of course, once you think about it, foolish. It's sort of like running away from a from a train by running down the tracks. You need to you need to run perpendicular to its path. And fortunately, even if you can't 
tell which direction it's traveling. They nearly always travel either east or east-northeast, sort of following the jet stream. So hmm. it's better to run north or south. Uh, usually, that's sometimes that's they, good advice. Sometimes they deviate, but usually that's the, the that's how they go. And this um, most tornadoes move forward thirty miles an hour, give or take. This one was called the Tri-State Tornado. It's March 18th, 1925, it sort of sped through Illinois. And it. this one was moving at 73 miles an hour. So in this case, this is the fastest forward speed ever recorded for a tornado. In this case, um, getting out of its way would probably not have been an option. In which case, your best bet is to get into a house. You sort of want to get as many walls between you and the outside as possible, because really the most dangerous thing about a tornado is the things that it's throwing around, trees and in this case, even locomotives were being tossed about. Mm. So you want to get as many walls or protection around you and uh, as you can. So you go into the into a house, into sort of the lowest room. At this time, they didn't have tornado shelters. This tornado has actually sparked the, the construction of tornado shelters. And tornadoes were actually so difficult to predict that the meteorologists were forbidden from even using the word tornado. They would, because they were so, it never really sparked anything more than panic and were so inaccurate at predicting them. So they would just sort of use euphemisms, sort of like strong shifting winds. So you really have would have no warning other than the sort of black cloud appearing on the horizon. I advise getting into a bathtub because there are no tornado shelters. And then maybe grabbing like a cooking pot or something and putting it over your head and, and ducking and covering. And, and that'll give you your best shot. I would be worried the walls would cave in on me, though, when the tornado hit. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a fair, it's a fair concern. A lot of the walls did, did cave in. But it is probably better than being hit by a tree traveling at, at 30 miles an hour. And it's certainly no guarantee that you're going to survive. It's just sort of the, the best option. Has anyone ever been like sucked into a tornado and thrown like 50 miles away and survived or thrown 10 miles away? Yeah. I, well, I mean, this, this, this was certainly capable of that. They found, they found items in, in other States from, from this tornado. Um, and as I said, they, this was a, they found a locomotive that was tossed almost half of a mile. So it was certainly certainly capable. But can anyone survive being sucked up into a tornado? I don't know if I've ever heard of that. It's, it seems... Like Dorothy. <laughs> That's true. I have heard of that. Uh, it seems implausible, but I suppose, I suppose possible if you found... I mean, there's nothing dangerous about winds per se. Uh, if you're in a 300-mile-an-hour wind, you're, you're going to be flying... But the it's really sort of either what you hit or what hits you that's going to be the danger at that speed. And it seems likely that something would hit you if you were in a 300-mile-per-hour uh, rotating tornado, but it's, not I suppose, not impossible that something doesn't. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com/music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. 
Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings. And voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. Now, one chapter of the book, you talk about the Donner Party, which is this one particular group of people traveling from the East to the West. But just in general, during that time, like let's say in the 1800s, it seems like an insane thing to want to go from East to California. Because not only is it just treacherous, they didn't really know the trails, they didn't really have a safe way to get across the country, but everybody was like killing everybody. There were various groups that would try to kill traveling parties going from East to West. Like it just seemed like an insane venture to try to to go to, to move to California. Totally. This was this was the beginning of the gold rush. So there was um, all sorts of pamphlets and rumors about sort of the wondrous treasures that you would find on the in California. Overstated, of course, but they were sort of moving from nothing to uh, sort of promised riches, and it was a sales powerful sales pitch. I, I suppose if you had very little. So people certainly started coming, and this group was in was in 1846, so the very beginning of the gold rush, and were enticed by rumors of riches. How did how did your family end up in California? <laughs> I suppose we came. I have some some Swedish Swedish and Irish heritage, but we we came after the gold rush. We were, uh, I think, our history. I've never really dove into it to be honest. I think really? we're, we were farmers from. I think my ancestors were sort of farmers from the Midwest. But not. We didn't come over in the gold rush. It was sort of in the twentieth uh, century. Some, at some point, we moved over. Okay, here. it was it was safer then. Yeah, I think we yeah. took a train, which is that was safe. Which was what I would It wasn't totally safe, but it was safer. <laughs> Hard to take a wrong turn in a train like the like the Donner Party did. But it seems like travel in general is causes more trouble than it's worth. Like you know, you you, you mentioned Magellan, who didn't and he died right like on his trip around the world. So. And I, I like how you mentioned what clothes you should pack. Like, what, what clothes you should pack in the 1500s for a trip around the world? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I uh, you didn't have, you, you couldn't pack too much, but they they sort of recommend, uh, you should wear a hat called a bonete, so just sort of fit in again. This was, it was a hat that the the uh, Portuguese wore on their, or this was the Spanish wore on their uh, voyages, and then you should wear a really thick coat because you really only get one or two pieces of clothing, and so something that withstand the sea air and it also has to last you about three years so uh it needs to be pretty sturdily made this was a, a pretty a pretty desperate trip but even more important than the clothing i think is um is the food that you bring because scurvy was the real killer on this voyage and so they had obviously no idea what uh the cause of scur uh, scurvy was or the cure but the officers uh including magellan on that trip received uh something called quince, which is basically like a jam. And uh, the, the regular crewman did not. And it sort of had nothing to do with scurvy. It was just about giving the officers a bit of sugar. But it has just enough vitamin C in, in the quince to keep you alive. So the officers survived on the Pacific crossing and the uh, regular crewman did not. So I would suggest using your packing space to, to get a little quince in there and, and keep you alive. Now, do you think the officers because they, they probably couldn't figure out why they were surviving and other people were not. Do you think they thought that just because they were officers, they were surviving and they were just better humans? It's easy to think. Yeah, I, I, I think probably so. There was Scurvy was a complete mystery, although it's, it's hard to 
it's a little bit hard in retrospect to understand why um, they didn't understand. They didn't realize what was causing scurvy, the, the lack of fresh food. It's sort of on the very first voyages, actually, there's evidence that some of the sailors were demanding fresh food to help cure the disease. And so it would have thought that it would have been solved right there. But there's some interesting aspects of, of vitamin C and why it doesn't always survive these long voyages. Sort of a lot of like pasteurization, for example, will destroy the vitamin C in, in, in juices. So you can easily imagine sailors pasteurizing or heating up their fruits and, and juice to keep them alive and then it not working. And so then sort of dismissing that this uh, supposed cure as a sort of superstition of the sea. So even though the, the cure is seemingly obvious, it killed more than 4 million sailors for more than 100 years before they, they figured out what was going on. And, and so again, like if you were transported back a thousand years, like you, you mentioned, you know, you have to have skills in avoiding violent encounters, bring bottled water, stuff like that. But like what knowledge do you have now that could help you convince kings to let you survive? Let's say you were brought into the court of some king in the 1200s. What could you say to them? And let's assume, for instance, you, you spoke the same language or you could communicate in some way to them. What would you say to them that, or what could you do that would convince them to let you stay alive? I, you mentioned toothaches. I always thought flossing would be a good way to prove that you were you, like, you were from the future and having good, uh, to save you from toothaches, perhaps. Yeah. The problem, that would take a little bit, that would take a while. So you'd have to, uh, I, I don't, I, I, it's hard to imagine anything that you could say right away to, that, that would keep you alive. But I would recommend flossing. And that way, if you could stay alive for a little while, you could prove that uh, you could save yourself from quite a lot of pain. Yeah, it might, that might not be like spectacular enough for the king to, like, he might think that's a bad thing. Oh, you're trying to, I'm going to cut my teeth off by digging into the gums like this. Like, he, he might not know. I wonder, can you make a fire? <laughs> like, what skill can we, that's sort of a modern skill, could we have that, that could show these people we're, we're interesting? We're interesting enough that they should be curious. And I think you'd probably have to thread a bit of a needle there, too, because if it were a little bit too spectacular, you might either draw, maybe draw some unwanted attention. Yeah. Be be accused of being some sort of witch or wizard. So I don't know. I'm sticking with flossing as being uh, unspectacular, but practical and effective advice. <laughs> you probably have a better idea, though. Yeah, I know. I have no idea. Like, like, Jay, what do you think? What can you do? What would you do? Probably bring glasses. What about glasses? Like, people are like, hey, you're wearing this thing. Oh, you mean glasses for vision? Oh, yeah, for vision. Like, like I'm sure, like, Back then, there's no glasses, right? People are like, oh, I can't see this thing. And then I'm like, hey, check out my this cool little, little like transparent thing you put in your eyes. You can see a lot of different things. Oh, yeah, Cody. Well, what about nearsightedness? Did people get nearsighted back then? Certainly, yeah. There was, um, there was nearsightedness. And, and, and glasses weren't a thing until they invented, a, sort of Venetia's invented a way to make perfectly clear glass. So glasses would be, would be great. Um, there was not a lot of reading back then, of course, so there was sort of, it was uh, less of a hindrance to be nearsighted. But. Oh yeah, how did people figure out actually how to make glass? Actually, I was just reading this. It was, uh, well, of course, natural, natural glass occurs. Uh, they found some natural magnifiers dating all the way back to the Assyrians and, and probably before is just sort of ground rock crystal can magnify a little bit. But real glasses, real glasses couldn't, couldn't occur or telescopes and stuff that Galileo used couldn't, couldn't happen until they learned how to make perfectly clear uh, what they call, the glass is called Cristallo glass. It was made by 
some Venetian glassmakers going back to the 15th century. And it was, um, they, they learned a sort of technique. They used different types of sand, hot furnaces to, to create this sort of perfectly clear glass. And it was, it was a secret. Uh, the Venetians were so secretive about how they did it, actually, that they quarantined all glassmakers to, to an island and forbade foreigners from working on glass and sort of imprisoned anyone who even tried to, to leave the country. So it was, a, it was a secret. So wait, if you were a glassmaker, it, was it just sort of sudden all of a sudden that the Venetians like rounded up all the glassmakers and put them on some island? I think there was, it was, uh, they were the, all, they were the glassmakers. And then as they sort of developed this guild and, and, and perfected this sort of glassmaking, it sort of became more and more secretive. But the exact process by which uh, these glassmakers were roped into living and working on an island with very little freedom is a little bit perplexing to me. And like, did they bring their wives? Did they have kids and then have on the island or did just glassmakers die off there? I certainly hope so. I, uh, but they were, they were very successful as, as in keeping the secret. It was like more than 100 years where uh, this sort of crystal glass really just came out of, uh, of these, the Venetians the island before. and how do they how do they figure out in the first place like if you get like a bunch of sand how would you figure out in the first place oh i'm going to turn this into some into a window like how would you figure that how would you even guess that like it seems like creativity was immense back then as opposed to now yeah just sort of continual experimentation right gradually gradually discovering a particular better material a better technique it probably wasn't one moment of eureka. It was it was sort of a, a long developing process by which they sort of they were making glass long before they were making this glass good enough to for telescopes and and uh, microscopes. So it was probably how they even think to like heat up sand and do something with it. Like like were they just was a bunch of kids playing like <laughs> setting sand on fire? Like what what happened? You think? Well, there was certainly a lot of like uh, super hot furnaces for making uh, weapons and, and, and bronze and metals. So it's just speculation, but maybe, you know, it would, near the furnace, some, some sand melts. It, it, it creates a, a type of glass right there. So you could yeah. see somebody finding that kind of interesting and, and, and work playing with that. Yeah, I wonder if like the first glass makers were, you know, sort of making swords or something like that. and just sort of this, saw the side effect of of making swords was that this glass like material was appearing. Yeah, it's uh, I sort of dove into this in the the oyster book as sort of how these innovations started and and wondering how uh, sort of metal workers first realized that you could create better metals by by melting rock because the fires that are the the, the temperatures that are required for for smelting metal are are much higher than a sort of regular campfire would produce. So it's sort of interesting to speculate with sort of a super windy conditions or something, how they could possibly have, have arrived upon that discovery. Yeah, I always wonder, like, it's similar to the thing of like, oh, this food looks disgusting. How would anybody start eating that? But it, it reminds me, like, let's say you were picked up by a UFO and you go to another planet and you're, you land at their spaceport or whatever, and now they're, you're, they're taking you into the city and they offer you a glass of liquid and it's completely opaque white, the liquid. <laughs> would you drink it? Would you think, oh, this looks like milk, it might be good? Or would you think, boy, this is just a clear white liquid, that's, that's disgusting. Well, I would certainly think it's, I guess I would think it was disgusting, but yeah, if they were, if they were offering, I don't know, I would, I would go back to my advisements for the, the first oyster eater, take a little bit and, and, and see what happens. Yeah, 
it's, it's always so fascinating that really the interesting questions of history are not like, oh, when was the Declaration of Independence signed? But all of these kind of more subtle things of how people actually really lived. I mean, there's many more chapters in your book. People should definitely read it, How to Survive History by Cody Cassidy. It's it's just fascinating, all the questions it raises and you know, and, and the things that made me think about while while reading it. I really, you know, envy you that you you have this life where you kind of research all these quirky but but really fascinating questions about history that force you to dig really deep to understand not only kind of the technically the, the chronological events that are happening, but how to actually survive and, and live through these things because people did survive them. And so it's it's just a lot of interesting stuff that you explore. So how else can people find you? Obviously, they should buy the book, How to Survive History, Cody Cassidy. But how else can people find your stuff? Well, I'm doing a few book events here in, in San Francisco. And then I've been, funnily enough, at the, uh, <laughs> at the encouragement of my publisher, I've been making sort of little TikTok videos that have actually been fun of little trying to sort of illustrate by video and <laughs> how to escape different uh, ancient disasters. And how's that going? Yeah, it's been kind of fun. I found the, uh, unlike a lot of social media, I found it to be sort of a positive environment, which was uh, sort of refreshing. Um, yeah, I think TikTok, honestly, is great. Like, you know, depending on what you're searching for or looking at, because then the algorithm changes. So for each person's feed's different. But there's just like, you basically see all these people with superpowers on TikTok, like people who are doing this parkour jumping that's amazing or magicians who do unbelievable things or people like yourself who have all this knowledge that that you're sharing. YouTube videos would be great also. Um, but I think, I bet you the TikTok algorithm really favors you because people probably spend time, like you pose the question, how to survive the dinosaur age, and then people are going to stick around for just enough seconds that the algorithm picks it up and, and starts spreading you further. Have you noticed that? Yeah, it's sort of, it's, you have to be sort of incredibly entertaining within like three seconds or, or at least post something interesting and within three seconds or people sort of swipe by. So it's a different method of storytelling than, um, than I was used to, but um, you sort of get a hang of it. It's, and then it's sort of, in, you can see as, as other people do and the algorithm learns you, it's sort of incredibly addicting as everybody out there is sort of learning how to suck somebody in within two seconds of, <laughs> of time. Uh, so you can find yourself wasting a lot of time on it too, if you're not careful. In some sense, TikTok is the predator and we're like the prey. We have to have just enough balance where some of us get sucked in and it ruins our lives with addiction, but others can just go through and be entertained for a while and then, and then move on. So I hope I'm in the latter category, but I tend to be addicted to these things. Yeah, it's easy to be chased down by the, for your attention to be chased down by the predator that is, that is TikTok's algorithm, that's for sure. Well, you should do YouTube videos too, because these are like perfect for YouTube. Yeah, it's I, I should. It's it's much easier to be to be uh, to create one sixty seconds of content I found than than a YouTube video. But I I would absolutely love to get into to delve into that as well. Yeah. Well, Cody Cassie, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. It's really just fascinating stuff. I I, I love this stuff. So the the book is coming out: How to Survive History. You get it on Amazon or your local bookstore. And I'm going to get, I haven't read Who Ate the First Oyster, so I'm going to get that book as well. And and there's one other book you wrote, right? Like what's, what was that? The first book? one is called And Then You're Dead. It's, uh, I sort of wrote it, I co-wrote it with a, a physicist friend of mine, and we sort of tried to answer questions like what would happen if you fell into a black hole or sort of uh, 
shot out of a cannon and and sort of tried to answer them as sort of seriously with as much uh, sort of physics and real life uh, experiments and examples that we could find to actually answer those questions. All right, I'm gonna, I'm going to read that and then you should come back on the podcast. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Cody. Cody Cassidy, How to Survive History. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com/music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay.